This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Christchurch Conversations Towards 2030 is a series of five events exploring how Otautahi Christchurch can achieve its climate goals. Organized by Te Butahi Centre for Architecture and City Making, each event features a range of thought-provoking speakers, from local experts providing the latest information to local businesses and residents sharing their own experiences and actions. This is the second event called Can We Be a Zero Waste City? And due to COVID level restrictions, it took place online. This program features three of the breakout sessions covering the topics of love, food, hate, waste, clothing culture, and closing the loop on packaging. And it's introduced by Dr. Jessica Halliday. Kia ora koutou and welcome to the first breakout session in the Ferro Room. This session begins with a short presentation and then we'll open it for Q&A. So please put those into the chat. Um, you can also feel free as we go along to share your tips, tricks and recipes. So it's my pleasure to introduce a leader in waste minimization, Sarah Pritchett, who works for Wastemans NZ, the membership organization for the waste resource recovery and contamination land management sectors. Sarah's role as sector project manager includes managing the Love Food Hate Waste campaign. So Sarah, the screen is yours. Great. Uh, kia ora koutou, namahinui kia koutou. Um, I hope you all had a decent lunch before you came here because this presentation does contain photos of food. So um, this photo in front of you it is um, more than enough for a couple of meals and lots of snacks. And that food was pulled out of people's bins during a waste audit in 2018. And um, I don't understand why anyone would throw away chocolate-coated co coffee beans. That person obviously hasn't heard of regifting, even if they didn't like them themselves, they'd make a perfectly adequate present, I think. This photo of food also contains um, food that was thrown out and um, we found during a waste audit in 2018. So with those photos in mind, it may not be surprising to know that collectively New Zealand households throw out $1.17 billion worth of food per year, which um, averages out to between $600 to $1,000 per household. Um, these are the top 10 foods we waste, um, bread being the, the worst, with approximately 22 million loaves thrown away each year. Um, I'm not going to read out all these stats because it will just become a bit um, meaningless if I read out all these numbers but while you're having a look at them I'll just talk about um, my household and why we contribute to these stats. Um, so in my household I have three main um, sources of food waste. One of them is my 12 year old son who's very very fussy and if you put something on his plate that he doesn't like chances are it will just be left there. He'd rather not eat than eat something that he doesn't like. Um, my 15-year-old son is my second um, source of food waste, and he is over six foot. He's sporty, and he gets really, really hangry, um, and he's great at cooking himself food, but often he cooks way more than he can actually eat and leaves um, you know, a stack of half-eaten pancakes on his plate that no one else really wants to touch after he sort of you know, had, a, had a go at them. Um, and my third uh, source of food waste is my husband, who's a great cook. He doesn't like shopping with a list. He doesn't like um, meal planners and he doesn't like recipes. And so he often cooks way too much food as well. 
Um, oh, actually, I was going to go back to that. My main point about this is that we all contribute, uh, we all create food waste. Um, and the good news is that it's probably one of the easiest ways we can actually reduce our household emissions because um, there's lots of easy ways to reduce your food waste. So on our website down the bottom there, we have lots of tips and tools and recipes um, that can help you reduce your food waste. So these are my top ones. Use a meal planner. You can use what you have already at home as a basis. So you could look in the freezer and the pantry, and the fridge before you go shopping and um, work out what you have and what you can what meals you can make from that. Um, make a list and stick to it. That can be really hard, but try as hard as you can and maybe reward yourself if you get to the end of the shop and you've um, managed to stick to that list. Um, another great thing to do is learn how to store fruit and veggies properly. We have a storage guide on our website. Um, so for example, onions, potatoes and kumara are all like cool dark places, but if you leave them in, this, in the cool, same cool dark place, the acid from the onion um, will impact the um, potatoes and kumara and make them go soft and you may end up having to throw them out. And the other thing, good thing to do is to use your fridge and freezer as much as possible. Um, one of my top tips is to have something I call a smoothie bag. This is what my smoothie bag looks like, an old coffee bag, bean bag. Um, and I just put any half-eaten apples that come home from my kids' school lunches, um, kiwi fruit that have started shriveling up a bit and bananas that have gone too brown. And I get those out at the I put them into this um, smoothie bag and then we make smoothies or crumbles. So this morning I looked in the freezer and I had a full bag of this and I have got it down to half by making a crumble out of it. So what I'd like you to go away thinking about today is that when you throw food away, you're also throwing away all the hard work and resources that have gone into creating that food. You've also, um, a lot of emissions are being created during the production of that food. So basically, if you throw out the food, you're throwing away all the emissions um, that were created in the production of it. Thank you. Oh, kia ora, Sarah, that was a fantastic bit. No, no, you were superb at being brief. A fantastic but really sobering um, introduction to the challenge of food waste. I, I certainly remember it, food waste caught my attention when it came to greenhouse gas emissions, when I learned that fact that you shared that for all the food waste in the world adds up to a third of, um, would be the third largest country in the world um, on an emissions basis, just food waste. Um, mm. The other fact I learned the other day is if we, if we addressed all the other greenhouse gas emissions in the world, um, except food waste, we would still go over 1.5, um, except the problems that come from agriculture and food waste, we would still go over 1.5 degrees. So it is a really um, a big challenge. Uh, my first question for you is, and, and we'll start with a question for me, and then we'll go to the chat. Great to see those questions coming in. Um, is often we brush off food waste, especially here at home in North Otahi Christchurch, because we have organics collection at the curb. Um, it's okay. I put it in my compost. I put it in the green bin. I feed it to my dog or the chickens. Why isn't composting food waste enough? Um, yeah, so as I said, when, when all that, um, that food's been produced, there's a lot of emissions being created along the way. So basically, you're, you're still creating emissions that could be avoided. Um, even if you put it in your compost, you're still, you, you haven't avoided creating those emissions. So basically, you know, it's all supply and demand. So the supermarkets supply what they think people want. So if you're buying food and just throwing it out, the supermarket doesn't know that. And so, you know, that means that they keep supplying more food that isn't actually necessarily needed because people are just getting at home and then going, oh, no, I just, I've got a whole 
bag of apples in my fruit bowl that have gone mouldy. So I'll just throw that in the um, compost bin or the green bin. It's not solving a problem at all. And it's still contributing to um, climate change massively. Yeah. Um, we have had one question that is about composting. And I don't know if your expertise extends to this, but Lisa's asked if, uh, the, if we should have a preference for compost bins or worm farms, or are they mutually, uh, are they the same pretty much? Um, no, I think that um, worm farms, I'm not an expert, but from my experience, worm farms do produce a nice juice that you can water down and use sort of as a fertilizer. Um, and they also have a really nice um, fine soil, but I think they're harder to manage. So if you're not very conscientious, you can end up with, you know, a lot of dead worms. They, they are, you know, there's particular things they don't like. Um, so, you know, I think a compost bin is still hard to get right. Um, it's not just as easy as just throwing everything into a bin and hoping for the best. But, um, you know, there's going to be less fatalities if you're a novice and you go with a compost bin than if you, you go with a worm bin and you, um, you know, give it too much of the wrong thing, which is things like carbohydrates and um, citrus and onion and things like that they don't like. Um, thank you. Uh, okay, Lee has a question. Do you know what portion of food waste is domestic? Consume, slash consumers and what comes from commercial or further upstream i.e supermarkets disposing of um, after a best before date food yeah um, we actually in New Zealand um, we don't have a lot of great stats on anything except for food um, household food waste and that's because we've done these food waste audits in 2015 and 2018 so that's the only reason we have good stats on um, household food waste um, so there hasn't been as much done. There's been a bit done on hospitality waste. And actually what they found was that a lot of the waste from the hospitality sector was um, left over from on people's plates. So it was like the portion sizes were too big um, and not people not being too shy to ask for a, a bag to take home their food. From a restaurant, never be too shy to ask for a doggy bag. Um, and from supermarkets, there has been some done work done on it but actually um, sorry without having the numbers in my head most food waste in New Zealand um, and in developed countries probably comes from the household um, and well and retail and, and hospitality but uh, most of it comes from the household sector so supermarkets give away a lot to um, food rescue organizations two main supermarkets here um, have partnerships where they they do give lots of food to food rescue organizations um, yeah, so sorry, I didn't quite answer that, but but um, the drawdown project, um, which is all about climate change, talks about how in countries such as New Zealand, most of it comes from consumers, most food waste. Whereas in a country, developing country with not such um, developed infrastructure, a lot of the food waste will be at the um, production end. So because there's no um, good storage or refrigeration. Oh, kia ora. Um... Thanks for that. I um, I know I, for one, could actually talk about food waste. It's one of my passions all day. But unfortunately, we are trying to um, claw back some time from the delay uh, that we've had in the program so far. So thanks so much, Sarah and everyone. This was a great stimulating uh, start to uh, a a long discussion about food waste in Christchurch. And yes, Maggie, I wish we could answer your question as well. Um, perhaps we'll find out whether we can include answers to some of your unanswered questions in our newsletter, which goes out after this.
Um, if you'd like to delve into this a little deeper, Sarah, can you please put the Love Food Hate Waste website or any other inf uh, links into the chat? Uh, Christchurch City Council are also happy for um, everyone to get in touch. Ailey's in the session and she said she'd be happy to hear from everybody. Um, and you can also attend one of Kate Mead's Food Lovers Masterclass online workshops, which are supported by the Christchurch City Council. Uh, so breakout session two is going to start in a minute. You can head to uh, the Corfi room or uh, for a discussion on low waste manufacturing or to Kakariki for a discussion and Q&A on called Red, Yellow, Green, What Goes Where? Or you can stay here in Fero for an interview on clothing culture. Uh, the links to the other two rooms are now in the chat. And I'd just like to again, uh, thank Sarah so much um, for introducing us to the challenge of food waste. It's great to have you involved, Sarah. Thank you. Uh, so kia ora and welcome to breakout session two in the Fero room. This session is all about clothing culture and takes the form of an interview with Stephen Park of Six by Four. If we have time, we'll definitely take questions from the room via the chat. I suspect most of us have some knowledge of how incredibly wasteful um, clothing and resource-heavy clothing and fashion are. So here's some stats. Only 1% of material used to produce clothing is recycled, and over 100 billion garments are uh, produced each worldwide each year. So only 1% of that is recycled. Most ends up in landfill, releasing greenhouse, gas ga greenhouse gases as they decompose. Every kilo of clothing that's landfilled creates 3.6 kilos of greenhouse gases. A 2018 audit for waste in Christchurch uh, found that the amount of fashion and textile waste we sent to landfill that year was 6,397 tonnes. That creates over 23,000 tonnes of methane, roughly equivalent to the amount released by 230,000 dairy cows in a year. In addition to this, a huge amount of clothing waste is dumped in developing countries. So it doesn't all end up in our landfills. We're really good at making it someone else's problems. So that's the problem, but what's the solution? Plenty of incredible people around the world and in New Zealand are working on systemic change in a circular economy for the textile and clothing industry. But for multidisciplinary artist Stephen Park, there's a deeper, more personal change that can be unlocked by examining our relationship with clothing and unleashing its potential in our lives. So welcome, Stephen. Thank you for being here this afternoon. So could you please tell us what it is that you do with clothing and what is Six by Four? Thank you, Jessica. Kia ora koutou. Um, I make things by hand. Um, I make a lot of clothing from secondhand materials uh, and things I find in up shops and things that people donate to me. Um, my interest is not in fashion or in, in the aesthetics of what's happening, but more in terms of finding humanness and object culture and understanding what I can make as one person and within my means and my scale as an individual. Uh, so that's what I do with 604 and it's not just clothing it's things like you know furniture and homeware and anything that is a material that uh, talks to the human experience and human object culture. Great thank you so how would you describe our current relationship with clothing? Uh, I guess everyone is 
pretty aware of how uh, broken the fashion industry is. Uh, it's the second most polluting industry in the world, second to petroleum. And uh, our relationship is something that's quite broken because what the industry offers and proposes is essentially way too much clothing. We have to choose from this um, sort of like inundation of choice. It's this illusion of choice because realistically, if you go into a shop, there's actually not really that much that's offered in terms of what its, uh, what its cultural background and um, you know its discussions of gender and things like that. What's actually an offer is pretty narrow, but we're given this illusion of choice that turns around so quickly. So that's what we have to, um, that's what we have to engage with. Mm. So do you have a sense that what we're currently offered in clothing is sort of impoverished, especially that by fast fashion? I, I think it is. I think it is pretty impoverished because the, we, we're so far removed from where the clothing comes from in terms of its raw materials, where it's processed, how it's dyed, who's dyeing it, who's spinning it, who's weaving it into fabric. All of those processes are alienated from one another. And we as consumers especially in New Zealand, we're so far removed from all of those processes. We used to have a lot of it in the country, but now it's all gone overseas pretty much. Like the last mill in New Zealand closed down a few years ago. So we are really far removed from the process of making clothing. And that's like a something that's happened in possibly like the last 50 years where we are finding that we don't have any understanding or any personal connection to the way that things are made. But that also is a problem that's not just to do with production but I think it's sort of like a emotional and spiritual problem that we're encountering because clothing is not just the thing that you put on your body it's all of the stuff that comes around it all of the uh cultural and emotional and social um sort of weight that comes to clothing and I think that is a huge part of the way that our um, relationship to clothing has sort of been fractured because what the industry is offering is a really homogenous, narrow view of what the body and the clothed body is. It comes from an extremely narrow perspective. Like when I was young, if I went into a store, there was nothing that presented, reflected or represented who I was as a, a Korean or New Zealander who's also queer. Like what, what is there that reflects who I am? You're not gonna find that in a pair of jeans and a t-shirt. There's nothing that reflects who I am. So that, emotional and uh, I guess you could say like spiritual in a sense, like that spiritual reflection of your identity is such a massively important part of clothing, but that's not recognized in the industry because it's trying to homogenize so that you just have this like really fast turnover of micro trends that will just make one small change and then you'll have to buy a new thing and it's gonna break down. And yeah, so I think that's a huge problem in the way that we are interacting with clothing. Yeah, so given that um, we have this impoverished and uh, sort of toxic um, offer from fast fashion and the industry at the moment, what do you feel clothing could actually be? What is its potential in our lives and in, uh, and culturally and spiritually? Um, I think clothing is something, the discussion around clothing is something that is a little bit sad sometimes because it's often, taught, like discussion around clothing can be seen as, uh, vain or inconsequential or sort of vapid but really if we think about what the base of clothing is going to the very beginnings of our species it's something that's so unique to our experience as humans it's so unique to our species and it's so uh, 
it's such an interesting phenomenon. If you take, if you, we have to deal with it every day, of course. So it gets kind of pushed to the back of the mind. But if you think about what the basis of clothing is, it's really, really interesting and fascinating. And it can be anything like clothing. If you put something over your body, like if you put a bed sheet on over your head, it's a, it's a garment. And it's so interesting. It's like, it can be so rich and playful and fun. And I think we can see, even if you maybe don't believe that clothing can be really emotionally loaded, like you, I think everyone can think of an example of like a garment that someone wore a lot, like you know, a pair of slippers or a jumper, like that a really, really lived in garment, even if it was something from fast fashion, that garment has and maintains that person's essence. There's something about that garment which makes it quite special, especially if that person's lived in it for a long time. So I think if we shift the value system of clothing away from fashion, which is about a externally dictated system of value, you know, abstract concepts of what a trend is and, you know, how relevant you are. But if we shift that value system to an internal value system, which is about your relationship and your story to this really interesting, you know, human phenomenon, like clothing historically used to be something so precious to every individual. You'd have maybe a couple of, couple of outfits and that would be, you know, one of the most precious things you own because textiles are so expensive to make. But that's shifted so much now. But I think we can find a place where we have, like, establish our own personal relationships to clothing and the clo and the clothing that we engage with. And I think that can be something that is really empowering and will will establish a different way that we can um, interact with this thing that can be really empowering and really um, really grounding in a lot of ways for who we are as individuals and also how we relate to culture and a culture of waste because that's our context at the moment. Mm. So is there a particular garment that expresses this rich potential that you can share with us? Uh, I guess for me, I, there's a, well, behind me, I'm, there's a, a curtain that I made out of all of the scraps from my studio. They're all cotton uh, and linen scraps that I saved over my studio for many years. And I sewed them into a big curtain last year but I brought a jumper to show everyone. So this is a, a garment that I found at an op shop. Uh, it was Helen Stein's. Um, so not great, but I got it secondhand and I actually was wearing this, I dyed it a lot of times to get this color. And then I was wearing it when I was uh, in a tree house and I fell out and broke my arm and it had to be cut out of it um, by the paramedics. And um, while I was recovering, I, I really liked the jumper. So I sewed back together the lines where they um, had to cut me out. So there's all of this embroidery down the arm. And now this is one of my most valuable garments. It's not even to do with monetary value. If I lost this, I'd be devastated because there's this history in it. Like it was just a jumper that I wore in my studio beforehand, but now it's become something that is so reminiscent. And so like, so I don't know, it's really, it's hard to describe it, but I, I love this garment so much because it, it does have the story now. Yeah, I, I think um, that's wonderful. It instantly uh, feels so much richer than a second-hand jumper from Hallenstein's possibly yeah. ever could. <laughs> um, and I think, you know, we all, uh, I, for those of us who know your work, um, you know, you are a remarkable craftsperson. Um, but how can the rest of us make up clothing our own and reclaim clothing as something that is culturally and personally rich when we're maybe not as skilled as you are well uh, I, I think clothing I think everyone has everyone engages with clothing like even if someone says oh I don't really care about what I wear like 
everyone engages and i think everyone has the power to have their own voice and clothing like i i make clothes to sell um but i still want everyone to you know engage and make their own clothing and interrupt my clothing and, and, and engage in lots of ways because the more we intervene with the clothing that is offered to us, the more we interrupt the system, the more we're taking power for ourselves and we're taking power out of this top-down system, which is dictating what is what should be happening and trickling that down through a really broken system. If we're taking things, even if it's a fast fashion garment that you've bought, you know, from a store or secondhand, if even if you're interrupting it by like altering it a little bit, like adding some embroidery or like changing it, cutting it, doing something, you're adding your own voice to it. And then you have that a different connection to it, which is sort of about an internal internal value that you've placed yourself. No, no, no one else can sell you that. It's something that you've created for yourself. And, you know, things like mending and darning, even if you go, oh, like it's not very tidy or neat, it's totally fine. Like the fact that you've done something with your hands you would never see anything like that in a store. You would never see hand sewing in a store unless if you're buying from an extremely expensive label because hand sewing is so time consuming and so personal. It's like your handwriting. Seeing hand, hand sewing is like seeing like someone's handwriting. And that's so personal and really emotionally loaded. So I think if people can see their clothing in that way and see their interventions into their clothing in that way, I think we can create a healthier dynamic with our clothing and see clothing as part of the human experience in a really in, um, enlightening and empowering way. Yeah, I mean, that is remarkable um, way to sort of shift that perspective that we have of clothing, um, often, most often as fashion, and as something that someone else supplies to us and we simply select. So that was incredibly, as Sarah um, noted in the chat, that was just wonderfully inspirational, Stephen. So thank you so much for sharing um, your view of clothing with us, because I think this is part of the change, right, is us shifting our relationship with things like clothing. Um, so we, um, it's been just wonderful to hear from you. So thank you. Thank you. Um, so now we're going to, again, do another transition to uh, a different room. Stephen's going to put any links um, to his uh, socials or um, so that you can keep in touch with his work. Um, Stephen also does sometimes uh, teach darning at Rekindle. Um, and if so if you want to improve your skills, that could be um, one way to do it. I've done one of Stephen's darning courses and it's um, it's an amazing thing to, to learn. So uh, kia ora koutou, um, welcome to the final breakout session here in Ferro. We are discussing all things to do with packaging, in particular with closing the loop on food packaging from composting to reuse. This afternoon we'll understand how three different people um, minimize or even eliminate food packaging in a business and in household settings. This is a show and tell session. Um, I'll ask each speaker a question and then they'll show and tell us what they use. And then after they've had the opportunity to ask each other a few questions, we'll throw it open to the room and take your questions. So pop them in the chat as we go. Um, the three panelists this afternoon are Lee McDermott from Prima Roastery, our Kia ora Lee. Uh, 
Helena Ruffle, oh, a PhD. Oh, kia ora. Uh, <laughs> Helena Ruffle, a PhD student at the University of Canterbury, doing research on the impact of microplastics on productive soils. Uh, kia ora. Kia ora, everyone. Um, and I haven't managed to work out whether Sharon's actually made it in Sharon. I'm Sharon <laughs> has made it. Sharon had a quick, um, speedy uh, transition from the previous uh, session in Kakariki to this one. Uh, so Sh Dr. Sharon McIver is the founder of Our Daily Waste, a social enterprise dedicated to waste prevention. My first question goes to Lee. How does a local coffee roastery close the loop on packaging? Yeah, so um, we've got a couple of major waste sources uh, from our roastery. So yeah, just a little bit about us versus we're, we're uh, Prima Roastery. We roast coffee and we supply it to cafes and uh, businesses and retail people. And we have a little cafe ourselves. Um, but yeah, so the two key um, sources of waste are, are, are packaging for our beans and then the um, sort of poster product for um, single-use waste in New Zealand, which is the coffee cup, the single-use coffee cup, which um, is pretty common um, in cafe setting um, everywhere in New Zealand, really. But um, so part of how we're trying to close the loop is taking that waste hierarchy approach um, so that's reduce and reuse somewhere up there at the top. And so for our own cafe, we just removed single-use takeaway cups. Um, and that's been, that was about five years ago. So we've had quite a bit of time to um, see what the uh, sort of results of that have been. And it's been really positive. Um, and then on the other side is uh, packaging for beans. And for, oh, for that, we uh, reduced the packaging by using reusable tins for all our wholesale accounts um, that we can deliver to anyhow. Um, but then the further down that sort of hierarchy is the compostability aspect. So um, our packaging has been, we use compostable packaging, um, which we introduced 10 years ago um, when it was sort of first became available. It's made by a um, company called Convex in Hamilton. Um, and so, yeah, we, we, we've been using that, but we it's definitely not a, a it doesn't have a proper end of life solution or it hasn't. Um, in New Zealand for most of that time. So um, for a few years, we were collecting it all ourselves and we've been accepting um, returns of that packaging to our roastery, but we went a little bit further and started taking it back from um, cafes uh, along with food waste and compostable cups um, from EcoWare and uh, composting it ourselves or myself really. Um, and uh, yeah, that went reasonably well for a while, but it's quite a lot of work to compost. And that's, I suppose, where that waste hierarchy comes from it's much easier just not to create the waste in the first place and I know that after having lifted <laughs> you know half a dozen bins a week into the back of my truck and driving them out and composting them on the on the farm so um yeah that that's um that's now ended and our new solution which has been quite cool is uh partnering with Canterbury Landscape Supplies and Total Waste Solutions to provide um uh, collection service where they'll come past the cafes that we supply. Customers can bring their used compostable packaging from any source, whether it's our bags or cups or from another cafe down the road or whatever, it's, it's sort of public. Um, and they can drop them off, Total Waste Solutions will pick it up and um, take it up to Canterbury Landscape Supplies. And they've got a forced uh, aeration windrow system out there that they've got going and they're 
taking PLA based packaging, which has kind of closed the loop for us a little bit, um, which is really, really cool. So that's where we're at. Awesome. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you, Lee. Um, Helena, um, you must be really concerned about microplastics um, studying it. And um, I wonder what are your top tips for avoiding single use plastics, especially packaging when shopping at the supermarket? Hello, thank you, Jessica. So the most important thing is to bring your reusable bag. This is a non-negotiable. Um, so once you've got your bag and you've arrived at the supermarket, the first place you'll enter is the produce section. So you do not need a plastic produce bag to put your apples and kiwi fruit in. You can just put it straight in your basket or straight into your trolley. You do not need it. If you are buying something like green beans or um, Brussels sprouts or um, yams and you want something to put it in, I would suggest getting some of these produce bags. You can um, buy them from most supermarkets or you can make your own out of like old neck curtains, which are really handy. Um, not at the moment with COVID, but usually um, you can go to the deli section and take your own container. So I know most countdowns and New Worlds and Pack and Saves will accept your own container. And how this works is um, the attendant will put it on the scales first and tear it. So that way you're not paying for the weight of your container. Um, and you can get your salads and deli meats and cheeses in here and whatnot, which is super cool. Um, also in the bakery section, you might have um, seen that there are a lot of loose um, buns and scrolls and muffins and whatnot. So um, instead of getting a paper bag, um, you can bring your own. So you can bring your own like little reusable bag. Um, or if you don't have one, you can just bring a pillowcase. So if you wanted to buy like a, a, like those 14 bun packets that they have or um, even like a pull apart bread, you can just bring a pillowcase. Um, when we move on to the pick and mix aisle, uh, if you're like me and you just love the New World Scroggin, um, you can bring your own Ziploc bag. So this is one that I just have from home and I reuse it and I wash it um, and keeping it nice. So that way you don't end up uh, getting a new Ziploc bag each time. These are totally fine to reuse and they actually do last quite a long time. And you might have noticed in some supermarkets now they have refill stations. So this is where you can refill liquids. Um, so you might have seen Eco Store. You can uh, take your dishwashing liquids and hand soap and shampoo bottles and get a refill. So uh, what you need to do is bring your old bottle. It's really important that you um, pay attention to the volume because it's either sold as 500 ml portions or one liter. So you could bring any bottle, which is either 500 ml or one liter into the shop, have it empty, and then you just fill it up. And they will usually have stickers, so you can put it on the back, um, and then you would write the product code here um, on the back of your bottle. And then you just type it in, into the self-checkout or the checkout operator will do that for you, just the same as pick and mix. So. Yeah, and also keep an eye out for things like bamboo toothbrushes um, and things like shampoo bars and bottles of soap. Sorry, not bottles of soap, uh, bars of soap, which are unpackaged as well. So some supermarkets will have quite a lot of options for you um, to go plastic free and reduce your packaging. Oh, kia ora. Thank you, Helena. And uh, Sharon, uh, where do you shop and what do you use? 
Dakota. Um, so I've been shopping at Binan um, for 20 years now, and I've used my containers that whole 20 years until last week when I had to do a COVID shop and I had to use plastic bags. I did complain to them when they gave me a bag about the plastic lining, but I actually do prefer using um, plastic containers at Binan, and that's partly because... Um, I've got arthritis in my hands. So for me, holding a container like this, being able to take the lid off, use the scoop straight into it, and then press the lid back on is a lot easier than if I was to use a jar. And I did that, which you really don't want to do on the floor of a bulk food thing in case it breaks. So I take my plastic containers when I get home, and then I put them in the jars to store them in my um, cupboards. One thing I don't mind using a jar for is almond butter. So they've got really good for peanut butter and almond butter. You can just put your jar under the machine and it um, just makes the butter straight out of the almonds. So that's a really nice way to, to use glass there. I also quite like to use um, for olive oil bottles, etc. I use a glass jar. This one's nice and square, so it's easy for me to hold. So that's just a few hints if you've got um, some nervousness about bulk filling because it can be messy um, one thing I've just added to my um, bin in bag this week and I cannot believe in 20 years I never thought this and it took Leslie Otty to tell me is a tea towel they have tea towels there but trust me they are manky and when you get cocoa or olive oil or you get turmeric on them um, you want your own tea towel I can't believe I haven't been doing this but anyway um, this is what this session's all about and also with COVID, you're going to be able to want to wipe your hands on something that nobody else is. Um, so when I go into Binan, I take my containers up to the counter. They tear them for me. They, they weigh it first. I think this has got the weight here. Um, they tear it. I go and fill everything up, come back. They take the weight off. And then because it's Binan, they, they do a subtotal and they give me 5% discount because I've used my own containers. So you start saving, um, first of all, you're saving because it's bulk and then they add extra discounts. And then they also stamp your card every time you use $20 and give you $5 off after 15 stamps or something. Um, so that's how I go about the Binan shopping. Um, of course, this is applicable to virtually anywhere that has bulk food. Um, stores. When I started shopping at Binan 20 years ago, I was a really poor student and I estimated I, I knocked 30% around about off the cost of my groceries. So I've kept that up and I can't even imagine how much landfill I've saved from doing that. So that's me. Thank you. Oh, kia ora. Thank you, Sharon. Um, we've got about two or three minutes left. I see there's been a great discussion going on in the chat. Um, and I think most of the questions there have been answered. Um, but Tony asks, and I wonder if this is open to all uh, the panel, what can we do about over-packaging with other items? Um, Tony says, clam packaging is a nightmare, wasteful, but also quite dangerous. Anybody got any suggestions? Um, I think send them back. I keep meaning to do it myself, but you can always take photos. If you don't want to send the packaging back, you can always take photos and post it onto their Facebook pages and question why they're using so much package. This is one of the beautiful things about social media. Um, so, yeah, I'd say send them back. Cool. Helena or Lee? No, I agree. Yeah, 
they need to be made aware of it that it's a problem to begin with otherwise they're just going to keep produce uh, like packaging their products and that material yeah um i i don't have a particularly useful solution but i do think that hopefully some of this compostability so, sort of side of the solution might come into play with some of those products that you can't avoid packaging with so obviously there's plenty of examples of you know over packaging of products but um sometimes especially in the food industry you need something um, just for safety reasons and i was thinking of, i'm still waiting for them to do meat packaging um and use a compostable material for that i'm sure it's possible um you kind of have to have it if you're going to have meat on a shelf in public it's you know it just has to has to be packaged well properly it has to be high barrier um, and compostable packaging can do that um so perhaps that'll take sort of one small segment of that packaging market and deal with it a little bit better eventually. Cool. Um, thank you all. Uh, Sharon, Lee, um, if you've got socials or other links to share in the chat, please do that now because we are going to transition shortly um, over back to the main room. Um, but I'd like to thank all three of our panelists and indeed if you've been here for most of the session, um, all five of the people who have led um, and been with these been in these sessions in the Faro room uh, this afternoon. Thank you so much for bringing your expertise, your knowledge and your passion uh, to this discussion. We know it is just uh, Helena, thank for that. Um, uh, we know that this is a huge discussion and we are barely uh, scraping the surface with some of this this afternoon, but it's all really inspiring and you can uh, keep up with our um, panellists and contributors on their socials or uh, at their websites. Kakite. This has been part three of Can We Be a Zero Waste City? The second event in the Christchurch Conversations Towards 2030 special series on how to achieve the city's 2030 climate targets. Many thanks to Te Putahi Center for Architecture and City Making for kindly sharing this recording. Podcasts of this series are available from the Plains FM website. Just search Christchurch Conversations. Conversations.